Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who is our hope in life and death. Father, without your son, we would be lost, we would be wayward, we would have no hope in this world. And we thank you for the ministry of Jesus Christ, who does give us hope, who will move our sorrows to celebration. And I pray that as we go through this passage, that this will be comforting and encouraging for all who hear. In Christ's name, amen. Well, in my 20-some years of being a pastor, I, I tabulated that I've done approximately 40 funerals. Seems kind of low, if you ask me. But I've been able to kind of categorize some of these funerals in my mind, and my favorite funerals are for uh, some of the older saints who lived godly lives and are finally promoted to glory. I'm not sure if you guys remember Dorothy Nichols, longtime member of our church. She passed away about a week ago. Uh, she's living with her children in South Carolina, so I won't be able to be at the funeral, but that's a great funeral, right? I'm more confident of her salvation than my own, right? Those are the, I don't want to say fun funerals, you know, but the first three letters of funeral is F-U-N. I mean. All right, but those are the fun ones. <laughs> There's another category of you know, the, the funerals where the spiritual state is not clear. And those can be a little bit tricky. But one thing, when you do a funeral for an unsaved person, you have an unsaved audience. And people actually listen to you when you do the funeral message, right? They don't pay attention to you when you do a wedding. They just wait for you to make a mistake so they can mock you later. But when you do a funeral, people are actually paying attention. But by far the, the hardest funerals to do, the, the ones I really dread, and, and I say that not because I don't want to do them, I'd rather do them than have some liberal pastor do them, uh, are the funerals of children. Right? Those are the hardest funerals to do. Because it is just a, a picture of tragedy when you see a young man or a young woman or, or even a small child who should be growing in life, decaying in a, in a coffin. Um, there is a, a deep sadness. There's a profound loss. There's a, a fresh awareness that this is not the way it should be, right? There's nothing more tragic on this planet than a, a child's funeral. And in our passage today, we walk into a child's funeral, granted an older one. In Luke 7, 11 through 17, you, you see Jesus walking into every parent's nightmare. Soon afterward, he went to a call, town called Nain, and his disciples and the great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died, was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came, then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. 
And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Now, this is a tragedy that does not remain tragic. You see Jesus walking into the most sorrowful of all situations, the greatest tragedy anyone can imagine, and he turns a funeral into a festival. The sorrow becomes a celebration. The despair is replaced by feelings of of delight. And so you, you look at this, and for those of you who might have lost somebody young, you think, wouldn't that have been nice? And we all know that this is not normative. I've never been to a funeral where there was a resurrection in front of me. Jesus is not walking the earth anymore. There will be a resurrection in the future. And so you can look at this funeral and think, well, I good for her. But what about me? Well, one thing you have to remember with Jesus' teaching is there's always a lesser to the greater. This miracle points to a greater reality. And if you go back a chapter to, one, to the Beatitudes, remember those in the Sermon on the Plain? You have Luke 6.21. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Right? Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Now you weep, in the future you will laugh. You know, this is, points to basically a, a greater promise that for God's people, all of our sorrow and all of our mourning will be turned to, to laughter when the kingdom comes in full glory. There is a, there's a future hope that all of us in the midst of sorrow will one day be a part of a greater celebration. But there is a gap right now, isn't there? Right? There is a gap between the sorrow we feel right now and the celebration that is to come. And, and, and you name the tragedy, right? You name the tragedy. There's a gap between the sorrow and the, and the celebration. And yet, that future celebration tempers our sorrows. First Thessalonians 4.13, do not grieve like the Gentiles who have no hope. Right? There's a distinctive way of grieving. And it's to grieve with hope. It's to know that the sorrow now will become a celebration later. So what we're going to do to kind of help us with that is to look at the setup, followed by the sorrow, the sentiment, the solution, and the celebration. We're going to move through this passage. And then I want to take some time to kind of reflect on what we can do to really minister to us and to each other in this in-between between sorrow and celebration. So we'll start with the setup first. Verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. Now, previously, Jesus Jesus just healed the centurion's servant, and he did so through spectacular means. Remember how 
The centurion is very concerned about his young slave who was on the brink of death, and he sends messengers to, to Jesus, and Jesus responds, and then as he's about to enter the facilities, the premises, he sends another group of friends to say, go no further, Jesus, say the word, I'm a man under authority, I know I say something, and it's done, you do the same thing, and my servant will be healed, and Jesus says, I've not seen such great faith in all of Israel. And then the servant is healed with a word, a long-distance miracle. Now, Jesus, he's becoming a superstar. Not only is he the most exciting teacher in Israel, right, who would just electrify the synagogues. He's casting out demons. He is touching lepers and healing them. He's untangling uh, decrepit hands. And there's a large following that uh, we need to be with him because this is where the action is. And so a large crowd is following him, and he's making his way down from Capernaum, about 25 miles southwest to a place called Nain. And it is there where he encounters a sorrowful situation. Verse 12. As he drew near to the gate of the town, Behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. So Jesus approaches the gate of the town. It's a conduit. Everything went through the gate. And as this large crowd is following him, he encounters a large crowd that is coming out of the city at the exact same time. It's a coincidence, isn't it? We'll talk more about that later. But, but to help you understand what's going on here, it might be helpful for you to just understand the Jewish burial customs. They would not start a funeral unless the person was all dead. Not mostly dead, but all dead. There's a big difference between the two. Right? You would have to be all dead. At that point, they would close his eyes and, and they would anoint him with oil, uh, possibly wrap his body to prevent the, the stench. They'd load him up onto a beer, a plank, and they would have pallbearers lift him up and carry him outside of the town the same day, the same day, so that he could be buried. So this is the situation. He sees the body of a young man who died that day. And this man is the only son of a mother who is a widow. I had a lot of flashbacks to Naomi as I, as I was studying this. Because remember, Naomi, the tragedy was she was a widow. She had no man to speak for her. In a strongly patriarchal culture like it was in those days, every woman had to have a man to speak for her. A, a daughter would have her father. A sister would have her brother. A mother would have either a husband or a father or a son. The only woman with no man to speak for her was a prostitute. And so here is a widow who, who no longer had a husband to speak for her, and she lost her only son. Remember that study I referred to in Ruth, where a world-famous psychologist asked the question, you are in a boat with your spouse, your child, and your mother. The boat is sinking. You're the only one who could swim. 
who do you save? Do you save your child? Do you save your spouse or do you save your mother? Well, in the West, it was 60% child, 40% spouse. Sorry, moms. But even the mothers would say, save the child. In the Muslim world, 90% of men said, I would save my mother. Isn't that interesting? You see, in the Muslim world, the identity of the mother was found in her family. And the closest relationship that she could even hope for was that relationship with her son. It was closer than any other relationship she had on this planet. And so here you have a widow who lost her only son. This was, this person was everything to her. She lost it all. She had nothing. And so the funeral would begin. They would close his eyes, anoint him. Everyone would tear their clothes in a gesture of solidarity. They're all making their way out of town and... Jesus sees the whole situation. And how does he respond? How does he respond? Well, you see the sentiment in verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Now look at verse 13. It does not say when Jesus saw her. It says when the Lord saw her. This is an intentional insertion by Luke. It refers to Jesus as Lord, the authority, the God-man. And when he saw her, what was his sentiment? He had compassion. Now, remember, this was written by Luke to a Greek audience. And the religion of the day, the, the noblest faith, was Stoicism. And it was the idea that Emotions are a sign of weakness. If you responded with compassion or anger or sympathy, that meant that other people could use your emotions to coerce you, to manipulate you. So the strongest virtue of a man was to be a stoic, to be unmoved by emotion. And yet here, we have Jesus responding with compassion. See, the Greeks also thought that for God to be God, he could not have emotion. Because otherwise, he could be manipulated. And that's the thought of many people in this day and age. That for God to be God, he has to be a stoic. He can't have emotion. But here in the Bible, it says the Lord had compassion. And you might want to say, well, that's just Jesus, the man speaking. But God is often described as having compassion. We just read the prodigal son, right? And when the father, and who does the father represent? God the father. When he saw his son in a distance, he had compassion. Lamentations 3, 22-23, the Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. Psalm 116, 5, gracious is the Lord and righteous, yes, our God is compassionate. 
Exodus 33, 19, I will be gracious to whom I am gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Right? God's not a stoic. Now, he's not ruled by his emotions. He's ruled by his sovereign decrees. His emotions are never outside of his control. He never loses it. But he feels genuine compassion towards his children when they suffer. He has genuine compassion. And when we take the Bible at face value, using biblical terms to describe God, he is described as having emotion. And that doesn't make him any less than God. For God to be God, he doesn't have to be a stoic. For God to be God, he has compassion and loving kindness that he dispenses to people at his will. And his compassion is what moves him to act. I remember a couple weeks ago, we had a national incident on television where we, we saw a man almost die playing football on Monday Night Football. And what was fascinating is how we were all captivated by this situation and we wanted to do something. And, and initially the thought from the NFL was, send your thoughts. Like that does anything, right? Okay, I'm thinking, what's that going to do? But then everybody got their act together, and I was amazed to see how many people believe in prayer. Something bad happens, you pray. God, can you do something to bring relief to the suffering human being? And so Jesus sees this awful situation, right? He has compassion. He wants to act. We don't know if he prayed to God. I'm sure he probably did because he was always in communion with God. But he was also the solution. Look at verse 14. Then he came and touched the bier. And the bear stood still and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. So Jesus, he goes up and he touches the bier. You know, that plank that the body was on. Now a conscientious observer would say, Actually, Jesus, that's like touching a dead body. That is forbidden in Scripture. So don't worry about it. That body won't be dead. He touches the bear. He's basically, he stops the funeral. He stops the funeral. Tells the, the widow, you can stop weeping. I'm going to do something to take care of your tears. And then he addresses the young man. Young man, I say to you, arise. And at that moment, the body sits up. Maybe you can explain it as rigor mortis. But then something else happens. The young man begins to speak. Well, he's not physically dead and he's not brain dead. And then he gives the son back to the mother. He gives the son back to the mother. Now, that's significant on multiple levels. Commentators say that this is an exact quote from the story of Elijah raising the widow's son in the Greek text. But the other thing is, 
The death that separated mother and son is conquered by Jesus. And he gives the son back to the mother. Hold on to that thought. You see the celebration. First of all, it says, fear sees them all, right? You see a man wielding that kind of power. What can he not do, right? This is next level power. After the fear, they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Right? They saw the next level power, and their conclusion was what? A great prophet. Not a normal prophet, but a great prophet has arisen among us. We are in the presence of a powerful prophet and no doubt they would have thought about the great prophet Elijah you guys know the story of Elijah the northern kingdom of Israel was going apostate and so God sent Elijah to confront Ahab because of their unfaithfulness God was going to bring about a three-year drought and so everyone was suffering on the brink of starvation and and Elijah encounters a a pagan woman and he asks her to feed him. She makes it very clear, I'll feed you, it'll be our last meal, then me and my son will die together. She still feeds him and God supernaturally gives provision. Now this doesn't necessarily have a happy ending for the woman. Her son dies. This widowed woman loses her son. And she appeals to Elijah, the man of God, just, did your God kill my son? Did I do something? And so Elijah ministers to her, and we read the account in 1 Kings 17, verse 21. And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, Let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. There's the phrase. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Notice, she celebrates not just the return of her son, but the reality of Jesus, right? In in this narrative in Luke 17, they not only celebrate the revival of, of the son, but the even greater work that there is a great prophet among us. God is visiting his people. Now, Elijah did that miracle. Elisha does a similar one. And in both of those cases, the miracle was done by physical contact and praying out loud. There is some straining on the part of the prophet. But what does Jesus do? 
Young man, I say to you, arise. There's, there's no, you know, as he tries to will him up. He doesn't do CPR. He says it. It's the greater miracle showing that he is the greater prophet. And everyone knows there is something amazing that is happening here. And that funeral turned into a celebration. And all of these events took place on a single day. I mean, can you imagine that day? Uh, The son was likely sick for a while, but when the mother woke up, the son breathed his last and gave up the ghost. She closed his eyes, tore her clothes, told the community, and they all gathered in solidarity, tearing their clothes, anointing him, covering him, putting him on a, on a bier, finding able-bodied men who were able to lift him up so that they might go to the outside of town to bury him. And as she's making her way out, it just so happens that she encounters a large crowd of people that is led by a, a stranger who shows obvious compassion to her. The stranger stops the beer, stops the funeral, tells her, you can stop crying now, then raises her son and gives her back her son. Right? That is emotional whiplash right there for everyone involved. It happened in a very compressed time. But it was to make a larger point. That that will be the reality for all of God's children. Blessed are you who mourn, for you will laugh. Blessed are you who have sorrow, because you will participate in this great celebration. And we're all waiting for it to happen. I think about Romans 8, 18 through 21. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Uh, we, we pray the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come. We're praying for this new kingdom with the new king where we will be part of a great eternal celebration. That's what we are waiting for. Blessed are you who mourn, for you shall laugh. You shall laugh then. So how do we maintain, have hope until that point? Well, I think there's four lessons here uh, that will help us to do so. The first lesson is that God is sovereign. At the moment the funeral was going out of town, Jesus was going in town. Was that a coincidence? Was it a coincidence that when Ruth went out, to glean out of the patchwork of fields that surrounded her, she happened to choose the one that was owned by Boaz. Was it a coincidence when Paul was held captive and was going to be transferred to another prison and a group of Jews decided that they are going to fast and not eat until they murder him? Was it a coincidence that 
his nephew found out and told the Roman guards to protect him? Was that a coincidence? I think we all know the answer. There's no such thing as a coincidence. God has a sovereign plan in all of this. God decreed the day of the son's death, that widow's son's death, and it was not that day. Now, when a, a child dies, um, I think the last thing any parent would want to hear is that's God's will, right? That's the last thing any parent would want to hear. Well, it was God's will. But when you say that, or when that is heard, that's not necessarily a right representation of how God's will works. You see, God's will can be subdivided into two general wills. You have his revealed will, his prescriptive will. Right? His prescriptive will is shown in what is prescribed, like the Ten Commandments. God's will is that you shall not murder, you shall not lie, you shall not commit adultery. You should love your neighbor as yourself. You need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is his God's prescribed will. Right? That's what he wants to have happen. But we all know that sometimes his prescribed will doesn't get accomplished, like when Adam and Eve sinned. Right, that brings about the anger of God. God's prescribed will was violated in the life of Jesus. He was betrayed. He was given an unjust, unfair trial. He was lied against. He was murdered, even though he never committed that crime. That is the prescribed will that was violated. God is always grieved by that. That always solicits his anger. But then you have his revealed will. I'm sorry, his uh, sovereign will, which is the decrees that he had before the foundation of the earth. While God uh, does not condone adultery, he does decree the children who were born out of the adulterous relationship. Look at Bathsheba. David took advantage of her. That was an adulterous relationship at the minimum. But God used that to sire Solomon eventually, who would be the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. You see, God can use violations of his prescribed will, which are grievous to him, which he regards as evil, to accomplish his sovereign will. Acts 2.23, Peter says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, sovereign will, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. They broke the law. They broke the prescriptions. They committed an evil act. Now, why do I say all this? It's not God's will that people suffer. That the innocent suffer. That's not what he delights in doing. That's not his prescribed will. Now, his sovereign will is that he will make good out of a bad situation. Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God is so powerful and has everything under such control that he can take genuine evil actions that disgust him and use it 
for good. So when you say it was God's will that your child were to, to die, that is an irresponsible statement to make. God's will is that your child would die, but that he would conquer death and he will raise that child again in full glory. And he'll deal with the reason why that child to die to begin with, which is sin and death. You see, God hates death. God hates death. He uses death, but he still hates it. He hates it. We'll talk more about that later. Secondly, well, actually, I'll go ahead and switch one of my points here, so bear with me. As I mentioned, God hates death. And because he hates death, he sent his son to earth to kill it. Ever thought about that? God hates death so much that he sent his son to earth to kill death. He wanted to execute death. See, death was something that was introduced to creation. It wasn't part of creation. When God made the world, his summary judgment was it is or it was good. Death excluded. The first mention of death comes in Genesis 2, 16 through 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And you know how the story goes. The woman was deceived. Somehow she got Adam to follow along. They ate the fruit. And death was going to come in phases. God had to punish death. He had to make good on this promise. And so the first death was the death of the animals whose skins covered their shame. You see, death showed itself in an estrangement between the husband and the wife and the animal kingdom, and humanity. Death led them to be exiled from the presence of God in the garden, and one day death would separate the soul from the body. Right? There's this idea of separation. It is all caused by sin. Sin is a reason why death is in the world. Sin is a reason why every person dies. It's a reason why children die. It's the presence of sin. And so to remedy this problem, we know what Jesus did, right? He came to earth and he never sinned. Satan tempted him, but he never gave in. And then he was betrayed. He was crucified. And while he was crucified, remember what he said to his father? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? There was... He had intimate communion with God all throughout his life. But on that moment, there was a separation, right? God was treating him like the worst sinner on earth. All of God's wrath, which was due to all of us and all of you, was poured out on Jesus at that moment. He was punished for crimes he never committed. And then God raised him from the dead to show that it was paid in full. So we can have hope because... Jesus paid for our sin, and all those who believe in Jesus Christ will be raised again in the future. See, ultimately, I think about parents who lost their children. 
believing parents who lost their children will be given back their children in heaven. He's going to make all things right. Because he hates death. He, hate what, he hates what death did. And he's going to do something about it. Now, just because Jesus is going to do something about it doesn't mean that he doesn't have compassion for people who are enduring it. Right? It might have been really easy for Jesus to walk into that funeral and think, don't worry, guys, I know something you don't. I think about the Lazarus who died, remember? John chapter 11, Jesus is about a three-day journey up north. He gets word from Mary and Martha that the one who you love, Lazarus, is sick. And what does Jesus do? He stays a couple extra days to make sure that Lazarus was good and dead so that when he came down to resurrect him, it would be an obvious, spectacular miracle. And you have... Mary, who, who is too emotional to even talk to him, and Martha is like, Lord, if you would have been here, he would have lived. And when you know something that somebody else doesn't know, there's, there's a tendency to be smug about it. Don't worry, people. This is going to be awesome. But was that Jesus' response? Shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five. 35. Say it together. Jesus wept. He wept. Just because we're suffering, just because God's going to use that for good, doesn't mean that he doesn't have compassion. He has compassion to people in the midst of their sorrow. So we see that God is sovereign. God will defeat death. God has compassion. But then there's kind of another element here. Why do we go through this exercise to begin with, right? Right? If it's all going to have a happy ending, why couldn't we just be happy the whole time? Why, why couldn't God just create a perfect garden with no tree of death, no serpent, and we are just all in endless bliss forever and ever? Well, I think the, the answer is there's a greater purpose for it. You look at, John, at Luke 7, 16 through 17, right? Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people, and the report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Would that have happened were it not for the resurrection? And would the resurrection have not happened had there not been death? You see it? Now, Blessed are those who weep now, for you will laugh. Now, I'd like you to indulge me. Last Tuesday, I went to the KU game. Okay? KU was playing Oklahoma. I even took John Warnley with me. Last time he went to a KU game was 29 years ago, which happened to be the last time Oklahoma ever beat KU at Allen Fieldhouse. And so I was there with John, and three of my children, and I watched KU turn in one of their worst performances of the year. They missed 21 layups. They went 13 minutes in the second half without a field goal. The Oklahoma lead was growing, and I was regretting bringing John. <laughs> They're down by seven, and my wife sends me a text 
nervous? And I just responded, concerned. Then when they were down by 10 with about five minutes left, I said, very, very, very concerned. And my wife wisely did not respond. I felt sick. I was sitting down, shaking my head. This can't be. But then they cut the lead to eight. Then to five. Then to three. Then to one. And with about 45 seconds left, KU stole the ball, drove down, charged towards the basket. The guy does this acrobatic layup, got fouled. You saw the whistle blow, the hand go up, banked in, down, and won. I lost my mind. (laughs) I, I I have vague recollections of Jake racing in front of me. But I lost my, my I, I lost all control. <laughs> and I wouldn't have it any other way. Now, would, have I, would I have had that same sensation if KU led by 20 points coast to coast? It would have been relaxing, it would have been fun, I would have enjoyed it. But you know what? That type of swing leads to a greater glory, right? We, we know that. What would we know about God apart from evil? We always talk about having hope. We would not rejoice and realize hope if we never needed hope to begin with. We would not experience the glories of his comfort if we never needed comfort. We would not see God's spectacular power over death unless we saw the dread power of death in action. You see, part of the purpose of sorrow is so that we will laugh later. And I imagine that the happiest people in heaven will be the Christians who suffered the most sorrow now. You ever thought about that? All of this parable, it's not a parable, all this true story is a picture of that. That someday, through Jesus, he's going to move every sorrow to celebration. And this is a sorrow for a moment that will be followed by an eternity of celebration. He will use his power to conquer it. And and we're waiting. Jesus has perfect timing. It's going to happen when he's good and ready. But as we're waiting for this transition from sorrow to celebration, you need to remember the, the beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for you will, shall, laugh. Let's pray. Well, Father, I I thank you for this text and the story about Jesus and how Luke decided to include it in his gospel. And I pray that it will stir all of us to greater faithfulness, knowing that you see our sorrows, you have compassion for us, you're doing something about it, And as we wait, I just pray that we'll extract special comfort from that reality, knowing that those who mourn now will laugh later. Pray for anyone who is really in need of this. Perhaps they lost someone, and this is kind of a fresh wound. I pray that the healing balm of your truth will comfort them. In Christ's name, amen.